from WDBM East Lansing. You're listening, you are to, the listening to the Undercurrent, a weekly radio show that, that brings you audio narratives from students at Michigan State Michigan University. State University. From WDBM East Lansing, this is The Undercurrent. I'm your host, Nina Rao, accompanying you today to journey towards adventurous yet unfamiliar visions. If you don't know what I'm talking about, maybe our theme will help. We're talking about representation. Bringing you stories of all kinds of it from religious misconceptions. Yeah, I'll, I'll say this, you know, it's interesting. I think one of the great problems we face is the problem of terminology. Sharia, jihad, Allahu Akbar. There are these words that mean one thing in the media and something very different for Muslims. To advocacy for the diversity of women. A lot of how the art world is designed now, it's typically male artists who want to shoot in like a heteronormative way to make money. All right here on The Undercurrent. If you're just tuning in, welcome. This is Impact 89 FM's weekly talk show, The Undercurrent. And you're just in time for the beginning of a female revolution. So we created our show early May of this year. The person who's talking here is Audrey Matus, a Michigan State student. And she says it was... Collaboration between me and a woman named Gigi Gomez, who just like we met out of the blue one day at a refugee conference. And Audrey liked her questions that she asked. So they just talked. And then I met her like several months later randomly and we started emailing each other. Those emails led to long nights and lengthy meetings. As a result, they turned their vision into life. The show is called Girl Gaze, and that was inspired by a hashtag that's really popular on Instagram right now. A lot of photographers, female photographers, directors, whatever, use hashtag Girl Gaze. It's just the importance of Girl Gaze, because there's a lot of photographers in Lansing, or just like everywhere, that are male photographers, and they're always kind of contacting girls that I went to high school with or whatever that are pretty, but also thin, also white. Um, and also from a st- certain socioeconomic background, so like they, the clothes that they wear and stuff comes from a certain commercial representation. So like they're kind of wearing that boho chic look. Really, it's not really original. It's just kind of copy and pasting what I normally see. And I feel like that is male gaze at times. And also like I feel you can actually like look at some male photographers' feed on Instagram, and you can almost guess like what type of girls they would like to date it's the same two or three faces you kind of see over i mean it's different women but it's the two same two or three phenotypes physical characters that you see over and over again there's this one girl i work with who um is indian beautiful she is so beautiful and she works with this one photographer who's really well known in lansing area all the time but you never see her pictures on his feed he just takes pictures of her that she'll post on her feed but she's never on his feed his feed is all blonde girls with like blue or green eyes you know it's just kind of wild so I just I mean I know male photographers do this all the time and it looks great like there are definitely male photographers that get it but on a local level and I would say a lot of how the art world is designed now it's typically male artists who want to shoot in like a heteronormative way to make money but hold up before we go deep into girl gaze you need to know what inspired it. And it is sometimes art house. 
So Sometimes Art House is a art collective um, designed for marginalized groups. So that's women, people of color, people with uh, disabilities. It's very vague. It's intentionally vague to be a kind of an all-encompassing, inclusive space. Um, but the intent of all these people, what they have in common is that we are all artists. Or want to be artists. And that's a part of Sometimes Art House. For people who love taking pictures or viewing art, are free to call themselves artists. It's so funny. And what inspired Audrey to create this collective actually started in high school. I was the lead editor, editor-in-chief of an art magazine called Aurora. And we were all women working on it. And then pretty much only women showed up to our meetings. And we, um, it was cool because like the year I took it on, I started doing a bit more of a marketing campaign for it. And it blew up. But people were really excited about it in the beginning. You know, As the year goes on, people die off. That's when she knew how much she loved being in female-centric spaces, especially when it's geared towards creativity. So that's something I've been liking, but I mean, obviously I didn't start this until my junior year. So honestly, what really got me started was being depressed. That's why I have never been as depressed as I was uh, fall semester of 2016. 2016 was just rough year in general, but that was rough for me. I had some health issues as well, just like kind of some feeling events, like failing relationships. I had ended like a really brief, like little fling with a guy. When that ended, I kind of was like, woof, like I gotta, I'm obviously not where I need to be in my self-love and my um, identity construction. And it really took a toll on me for some reason. I was like, yo, this doesn't match up. Like this was such an insignificant part of my life. Why is it affecting me this way? So I kind of went through a semester of just like kind of feeling down. And then like winter semester, I was still really slow moving mentally. I just kind of felt really isolated. And then I think I just forced myself. I drew I drew a correlation with me being depressed and me not creating. Like that's when I'm mostly the, my saddest is when I'm not creating. So I just really wanted to, and I felt like I needed a community of people reminding me that I could do it because I wasn't able to really be there for myself and be like be enough. And like as like oh yeah, this is good work. I kind of needed a community of people to remind me that what I was doing was worth my time. And she has always been a huge fan of Art Ho Collective and other cooperatives that celebrate and create art. So I was like, bracket. Well, I'm just going to create my own. <laughs> well, sometimes our house was able for me to focus on like love with just people that care about you and share the same vision and also, you know, all female space where we can relate in ways that I can't relate to with a guy. Um, so just feeling like protected and supported. That's love. Like, that's really love. I think we over-glamorize what love really means. You have to have a partner. But love is really just having a safe space to share ideas and make something. Be that a Facebook status that you're together or, like, an art show. <laughs> and sometimes Art House was created during a time where art collectives were on the rise globally. Audrey shares her theory of why this happened. Honestly, the 2016 presidential election, or 2000, was it, sorry, is it 2017? Yeah. yeah, with Trump's election, I think a lot of artists of color obviously got frustrated, or you're not all artists of color, but like those with like a certain mindset, progressive mindset, why inclusivity in their world or in their nation were really fueled up. While it is perhaps a negative for certain groups, which are typically these marginalized groups who want to create. Um, it flat a fire under them, I think. And I, I, I had to put it to myself as well. The election wasn't part of the reason why I felt so down. I was like, wow. But also like now more than ever, I need to be creating things and sharing my perspective as well. I may not be the most oppressed group in the U.S. because I'm not like economically. I'm definitely like above the majority of Americans. I realize I am still 
are sort of shooting myself with people of multiple different categories. And I feel and as an artist, I always want to share their stories or somehow like interpret the similarities of our experiences. And that's needed more than ever. People need to see these struggles of people more than ever before. And not in like a media way of like, oh, today a male was shot. Like a piece about that, like reflecting on that piece and about like how this is actually a systemic issue, like kind of slowing down the conversation. Being a woman of color has helped her relate to many other marginalized women. However, intersectionality is still at play and is so complex. By being half white and financially secure, it creates separation. Um, For some people that are darker complexions than me, they almost see me as like a full white person because I am allowed a lot of privileges, be it just because people fetishize mixed light-skinned women. And so when I'm, I'm considered like a desired minority, you could say. All of this gave birth to girl gaze. I created this community. Doesn't mean that all five of us are working at the end of the night to work on stuff. It's very much when you create something like this and like when you start a big project, you have to know that it will be you running it for a long time. Until you can prove to people that like this is worth them spending their time putting their energy towards, they're not gonna really join. And so that's why I feel like I had to do an art show um, in 2017 or like that first before the semester was ended. And so I put it together in like a month. <laughs> it was not the best idea, but like I had to make something for people to see and want to join and be like, okay, this is actually worth my time. Because even though they're my friends, they still have their own agendas. And the quote-unquote male gaze in society was stuck in her mind. Because there's a lot of photographers in Lansing, or just like the, everywhere, that are male photographers. And they're always kind of contacting girls that I went to high school with or whatever that are pretty, but also thin, also white, um, and also from a certain socioeconomic background. So like they, the clothes that they wear and stuff comes from a certain commercial. So she used that as her inspiration for the show. Girl Gaze is really important as a hashtag, as a revolution that's kind of starting all these different girl collectives. And that's why we named, made it the name of our art show of just like female photographers or artists, visuals vi- or visionaries that are representing the female body in a non-exploitive way. They're truly looking at it as its beauty. So maybe you'll see a collarbone versus like a shot of just like a girl bending over with like her boobs hanging out or her breasts in like an Urban Outfitters shirt, you know? And also like when you have someone's feet, when you see the same type of women over and over again, you're like almost, you're trying to curate a type. And by that you're exploiting, Oh, I think. I think when you're kind of seeing and you're hunting for one physical type, you're now not making that as special anymore. It's no longer beautiful. And you know, you could say the same like, oh, well, she's just trying to photograph, she's just shooting brown women. But it's brown women of a variety, you know? Like it's different economic backgrounds, it's different physical types, it's different um, sexual identities, and like making that clear. It's not a secret. It's not like, oh, she's a lesbian, Shh, but we're going to shoot her in a very like heteronormative way to, so guys like her. It's like that her queerness becomes part of the shoot and the aesthetic. So I just, I mean, I know male photographers do this all the time and it looks great. Like there are definitely male photographers that get it, but on a local level, and I would say a lot of how the art world is designed now, it's typically male artists who want to shoot in like a heteronormative way to make money. And the response towards the show was as lively as Audrey's vision. A lot of people came up to me during and they're like, this is like really great. And I was, that was so nice for me because I was running around frantic. I was like, oh my gosh, things are falling off the walls or like the music's not playing. We get a playlist going. It was nice. It was a really good turnout numbers wise. 
people were, came up to me a lot afterwards. It was really humbling to know that people actually like cared and were proud of me. For Impact Student Radio, I'm Nina Rao, and you are listening to The Undercurrent. To find out more about Sometimes Art House, you can find them on Facebook by typing their title. If you missed any part of the story, no worries. You can listen to us online at impact89fm.org or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Look out for us in a black and red logo. Before we move on, here's your weekly Impact update. The Undercurrent will return in just a moment, but first, your weekly Impact update. I'll be your anchor, Cole Tunningly. On Friday afternoon, around a dozen police officers stormed a house on the east side of Lansing and found it empty. The tactical team broke through the front door after fruitlessly using verbal negotiations and smoke once the suspect had stopped responding to their phone calls. Officers from several police departments in the greater Lansing area showed up to the house near the 200 block of Mifflin Street. They found no weapons or people inside. They had been waiting from 10.30 p.m. on Thursday to 12.40 p.m. on Friday before they broke in. That was your local news, and next I have for you your national news. Earlier this week, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie worsened his astonishingly low 15% approval rating. He's been in office for eight years, and with only six months left to go, New Jersey Republicans hoped that he would exit office quietly and gracefully. But residents of the state are newly furious over a photo of Christie and several guests lounging on a public beach, shortly after the New Jersey government shut down. They noted the cruelty in beaches closed to the public around the 4th of July, but open to Christie and his loved ones. Republicans feared that his approval rating could drop into the single digits after this. And that was your national news. Next, we move on to your international news. Workers at the Israeli soft drink company SodaStream are looking to unionize. They want better pay and better working conditions from their employer, who has previously been the target of a BDS campaign. BDS stands for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, and they're a movement devoted to Palestinian freedom. Less than 30% of workers in Israel are unionized. Since a flurry of neoliberal privatization decades ago, poverty and inequality have been steadily rising. But now the labor movement is coming back through protests and re-energized organization. That was your international news. And finally, to top it off, we have some music news from contributing reporter Theta Domer. This week, the New Yorker praised musician John Moreland and his new record Big Bad Love in their article, John Moreland's Sad National Anthems. They stated that there are no heroes or villains in his songs, just folks doing the best they can. It describes John Moreland as a gentle and accepting country punk folk mirror of our national identity. Meanwhile, he also uses his personal life to inspire lyrics that may be universally healing. In the song, Salazal Blues, he honors life's inevitable messiness with the casually profound line, quote, God bless these blues. That was your music news, and this has been your weekly Impact Update. I've been your host, Cole Tunningly, and now, back to the undercurrent. Up next, we have staff reporter Sammy Luke sharing part two of her panel discussion about ISIS and Islam. Here it is. Extremist groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda use their interpretation of Islam to justify acts of terrorism. This has caused the media to depict interpretations of the religion that most Muslims do not identify with. 
Here's religious studies and Islamic thought professor Muhammad Khalil to elaborate. You know, if you're not interacting with Muslims, if you don't know Muslims, and all you see is what you see on TV, then you're likely to have a very negative view of religious Muslims, Muslims who, who, who say terms like Allahu Akbar, which means God is great. It's a beautiful term. Muslims say every time they pray, they say it. You know, and so to see people saying, oh, that, uh, this guy said Allahu Akbar, therefore he's a terrorist, that's so disturbing for, for most Muslims. The Telegraph reports that the term Allahu Akbar translates as God is greater. To Muslims, this means that God is greater than any other being. Allahu Akbar is one of the most common phrases in Islam. However, the term has developed negative connotations because Islamic terrorists sometimes recite the term prior to an attack. Another part of Islam that is portrayed imprecisely is Sharia law. So, you know, Sharia is a beautiful thing to a Muslim. It's the path that leads to success. It's, it's the spiritual journey of a Muslim towards God. Um, and we all have those journeys in our faith traditions. So what's new? Critics fear the idea of Sharia law taking over. However, Time reports that the vast majority of Muslims do not want Sharia law to overtake the Constitution. And, and I, I just I worry about, you know, these news reports where you see the extremes only. Because the average person will assume that's Sharia. They don't take the time to think, well, maybe this is a, a rejected interpretation for the majority of Muslims. Recently, Sharia law has faced criticism in the media for punishments laid out in the Quran for the five had crimes. The Council on Foreign Relations reports that these crimes are illegal sexual intercourse, meaning adultery or sex before marriage. Then there is false accusation of illegal sexual intercourse, wine drinking, theft, and highway robbery. Some of the punishments for these offenses include stoning, flogging, exile, amputation, or execution. However, most countries do not carry out these punishments. According to Imam Sohail Chaudhry from the Islamic Center here in East Lansing, one of the reasons these punishments are not carried out is due to the large amount of evidence needed to prove the crime was committed. But one of the things which people don't understand and don't know is that, like Professor Khalil said, that some of the evidences required is just so difficult to gather that it's almost impossible for those penalties to go through. For example, the one you mentioned on adultery, there is the scholar which was mentioned earlier, Ibn Taymiyyah. You know, he wrote, uh, you know, uh, much later after the life of Prophet Muhammad, almost like eight, nine hundred years later. And he said from the time of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, up until his time, he does not know of a single case of, you know, adultery being punished by the capital punishment because the evidence was never there. You need four eyewitnesses who have seen the act of adultery for a person to be, you know, accused of that act. And, you know, people don't commit adultery out on the street for people to to witness them. Uh, If you bring three and not the fourth one, uh, you are the one in trouble now because you accused somebody without the proper evidence. So most of those penalties are deterrence so that people, when they think about adultery, They think about, you know, this is something really evil, something really bad, and I need to, you know, preserve my family. So those punishments might be very harsh, yes, but they are more deterrence than actual punishments. Some of the negative connotations associated with Sharia law may come from how extremist groups like ISIS interpret it. Extremist groups use had punishments that were seldomly used in Islamic history. It's related to the word for street, shara. It just means like the path you're supposed to take to be a righteous believer. That's what Sharia is. It's it's the way it's it's the it's literally it's the path to the watering hole. It's it's what the path you take to to find what you need. And 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 Muslims have different interpretations of Sharia. What you see on the news again is is the extreme. It's not how most Muslims imagine Sharia. Another term that seems to spark both confusion and controversy is jihad. The straightforward linguistic translation is struggle, exertion of effort. Uh, and in a, in a religious context, it's a struggle or exertion of effort 
for what is perceived to be a noble cause. Uh, there are all kinds of jihads. There's the intellectual jihad, learning, scholarship, teaching, students of knowledge. There is the jihad, the social jihad, you know, where you, you greet people with a smile uh, despite having a bad day. When you go home, you greet your family, you know, with a smile, you hug them. You say, Salaamu Alaikum, peace be upon you. Now, these are all struggles. When we pray five times a day, when we fast in the month of Ramadan, in the hot summer days, as we're doing right now, these all require a struggle. And so, uh, you know, without jihad, there is actually no concept of, of Islam because every aspect of Islam requires this noble struggle. According to BBC, there are three different struggles that are considered jihad. The internal struggle of being a well-practicing Muslim, building and keeping a good Muslim society, and the struggle of defending Islam with holy war. So there is a concept of armed jihad, but there are strict rules of warfare. What, with ISIS, what ISIS does then is it presents its terrorist attacks as jihad, and in so doing, it twists the idea of jihad to serve its purposes. Extremist groups such as ISIS are not following the rules of warfare set into place. The concept of armed jihad is intended for self-defense and is not meant to forcibly convert people to Islam. Therefore, terrorist attacks committed by extremists are not legitimate examples of jihad. Um, you know, the term jihad has a very positive connotation in Islam. So, I mean, think of the word crusade, right? That term can have a very positive connotation here when you say crusade against hunger or whatever. But if you go to other places and say crusade, it has a very negative connotation because of the past, because of the history. And I think with jihad, we have to be very careful because when we say these people are jihadists, we're actually encouraging them. We're saying you're doing something good. Professor Khalil thinks terms like Allahu Akbar, Sharia law, and jihad are often misconstrued by the media and the public. Yeah, I'll say this, you know, it's interesting. I think one of the great problems we face is the problem of terminology. Sharia, jihad, Allahu Akbar. There are these words that mean one thing in the media and something very different for Muslims. For Impact Student Radio, I'm Sammy Luke. This is the Undercurrent Impact's weekly talk show. And our staff reporter, Sammy Luke, will come up with part three of the panel next week, so make sure to tune in. If any of the stories inspired you to pitch an idea, please do. You can contact us at news at impact89fm.org or find us on Facebook at The Undercurrent. We're always looking for new ideas, and you may know something that we don't or aren't covering. You can message us on our Facebook page. We now have a piece from PRX that describes another kind of representation. Five adults recall childhood memories of watching the first visual representation of how nuclear war might devastate America. So I have these two uh, things inextricably linked in my head. They take about 30 minutes to reach their target. Instead of theirs, right? That's a warning. This is me. All confidence is high. Hello? Hello? Is anybody there? Is anybody there? TV movie depicts the aftermath of nuclear disaster as it follows the lives of a handful of residents of Lawrence, Kansas, including a professor, a doctor, 
a young woman, and a college student. Um, we watched it as a family, my parents so and my brother. what I remember about the day after is, first of all, that I watched it by myself. I remember watching it alone. Tension rises as radiation levels increase, and Americans must find ways to survive against all odds, physically, mentally, and emotionally. That I was way too young to be watching it by myself, but I remember, I don't know where the rest of the family was, we had this little TV in the kitchen. The night it aired on TV, um, my parents were downstairs in the basement watching it. And she and I were not even allowed to go in the basement. And I can remember lying down in front of the TV and watching the whole thing and being absolutely transfixed and terrified. She went down and, and she snuck end, a peek at the I TV and she saw sort of one scene or one image and it was of bodies being killed by being they, they look like they were being x-rayed so you could see all their bones and i remember watching the scenes of the kids in the classroom and the bomb had come and all of a sudden they you just see skeletons in the classroom and it was big black and white flashing and there's this glow and i thought that's just gonna happen to everybody <laughs> Roger, copy. This is not an exercise. Roger, Major, right now we have a massive attack against the USS at this time. ICBMs. Numerous ICBMs. Roger, understand. Over 300 missiles inbound now. When you close your eyes, start remembering. Hair falling out. Like missiles, silos coming out from the ground in the middle of, like, someone's yard. Skin turning a certain... Way. A little boy and his mom, and he's puking up blood. Do you remember that? And, you know, kind of blighted landscape. You see some guy, like, driving on the highway in the suburbs, and you see the, the mushroom cloud in the distance, um, and it's just like... I've seen at Royal Stadium where it's a, it's a, USA, it's a, it's a beautiful it... afternoon game, and the, the stands are packed, and um, in the distance beyond the center field fence is... You see the... The ICBMs launching. Do you remember that? That was when everyone knew that there was going to be a nuclear war. It's like, and it was set at the at the baseball game. When you close your eyes, what do you remember about the film the day after? Start remembering. That like just triggered a total panic in my brain. And I remember. Um, I remember that there was. At that moment, I remembered that. But remember, I remember. I just. I, and I remember, remember being really, really scared. very distinct memories of sneaking down the stairs because my sister had some friends over and they were watching. And um, seeing the fallout and seeing in my mind their very pale green bodies just laying there. And I think I must have been watching through my hands, over my eyes, just through little cracks between my fingers. I couldn't pull away. I knew I shouldn't be seeing it. I knew I was scared, and I was really um, unable to stop watching it Mm -hmm. until I just got really freaked out and stopped. But I probably watched a good 15 minutes of it. Not when all the political stuff was happening, but just once the bomb blew up and what happened afterward.
And I remember going back upstairs and going to sleep and having all of this terror and not knowing what to do with it. And I was listening to uh, like a classic rock station, WMMS in Cleveland. And the DJ was counseling people about the movie because so many people had seen it. And I guess we're calling the radio station like really screwed up and really needing someone to calm them down. And so this classic rock like shock jock guy was um, administering sort of his counsel and being the voice of reason and just saying, it's okay, everybody, calm down. This was just a fictional depiction. And um, he was really, he had the task of sort of offering therapy to thousands and thousands of listeners, I'm sure. And I also have this strange connection in my head to cheese fondue because my sister (laughs) had made some cheese fondue with her friends and I had never had that before and part of the evening also involved my trying cheese fondue for the very first time so I have these two uh, things inextricably linked in my head Close your eyes. I mean, it's not that I see cheese fondue and think of nuclear war, but when I think of the movie, I do think of cheese fondue. Well, that's it for today. Special thanks to our general manager at Glazer and our station manager, Audrey Matus, our news director, Cole Tunningly, and staff reporter, Sammy Luke, and, of course, our program director, Ella Kovacs. The music used throughout this episode was from the album Before Dawn by Ryan Little. You can check him out on YouTube by typing his name. He makes pretty dope beats. Thanks for tuning in. We'll hear from you next week. You've been listening, You've been listening to, to the, the Undercurrent. Undercurrent. To the Undercurrent. From WDBM East Lansing.